Welcome to a special election preview episode of the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee, and thrilled to welcome a special guest today as we dig into the midterm elections and what the possible implications could be for energy policy in the United States. Look, this is an energy-focused podcast, but policy drives energy and politics drives policy. And so we need to talk about the midterms. And to do that today, we've got as our guest, former United States Senator from Minnesota, Norm Coleman. Thank you for joining us today. My great pleasure. Well, let's start. We've got a sitting member of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, in a tough re-election bid in the state of Nevada. Uh, you and I know well from our time in the Senate serving with the late Senator Harry Reid, former Democratic leader. He had built a pretty robust ground operation in Nevada that has powered Democrats in recent cycles. Curious to get your take on the state of that race. Can Adam Laxalt overcome the Harry Reid machine? So we all know in politics, the world belongs to those who show up. Harry Reid had the capacity to make sure folks showed up. A tremendous ground game. By the way, you know, Minnesota is something we always face. We had a combination of the Democrat former Labor Party. We had then organized labor, AFL-CIO, SEIU, AFSCME, and then we had the Wellstone Coalition. And so in the end, ground game makes a difference. The difference is Harry Reid's gone. And I don't think that ground game is what it was before. And, and I got to kind of just speak a little more globally here. Just some of the forces that will impact this election, not just in Nevada, but overall, are kind of the issues on the minds of voters, including Nevada voters, and some of the, the trends, the movements in terms of Democratic Party no longer being seen as the party, kind of the average working guy, seen as the party of, of the elites and in the, the New Yorks, the Bostons, the, the, the San Francisco's, the LA, the coastal, and maybe some urban centers. And so if you look at those forces, one, the issues on the mind of voters today, and, and poll after poll is telling you this, is the economy. The economy, the economy, the economy. Bill Clinton understood it, right? The economy stupid. And it is the economy. And the economy then ties in inflation, that what you're earning less today than, than you did uh, in terms of real dollar value when Biden took office. The crime, folks in, in suburban areas worried that you're going to get carjacked. Crime in, in, in urban centers gone through the roof, but it then has an impact beyond the urban center. Just by the, the overall kind of perception of where America is going, you know, lack of control of the border. People, about 70, close to 80 percent of folks saying we're moving in the wrong direction. Last piece I'll put on the table and then we'll tie all these together is that midterms, midterm of uh, a president in his first term in office, they're typically referendums on the incumbent. And this incumbent in swing states and among independents has approval ratings that are about as low as one could see historically. So Biden's in the 30s in terms of, of approval rating in swing states such as Nevada and among independents. And so when you pull all those together, what you see is, and I'll say it in, in Nevada, I think Lassol, I don't let win 
wins that race, wins that race. And, and the Democrats are, you know, they're, they're selling January 6th in abortion. And that's not what's on people's minds when they're going to walk into that voting booth. And that could be ground zero for working class voters, for Latino voters, and kind of building on some of the trend lines we've been seeing of those folks moving more towards Republicans and conservatives. And that could have wide ranging effects beyond Nevada. You're right. I mean, Nevada is, is, is kind of a canary in a coal mine. It, it, there really is a bellwether, particularly what you just spoke about. The Republican Party is making significant gains, you know, among working class men and women and uh, among Hispanics, among African-Americans, African-American males. It's kind of interesting. I have, a, I have a place in northern Minnesota, a cabin, about three and a half hours north of the Twin Cities. And I got to tell you, uh, during the, the Clinton-Trump election, I never saw a Clinton lawn sign anywhere in northern Minnesota. All those, the guys I put in my docks, the guys that my plumbers, the, the carpenters, electricians, you know, the working men, they were all voting for Trump, which was a change. When my wife and I saw one Clinton sign among, you know, in this area, we, and we had to drive up to a close look, and of course what it said was uh, imprison Clinton. That was the sign. In northern Minnesota, uh, which by the way, we have a governor's race in, in which there hasn't been a Minnesota elected statewide since myself and Tim Pawlenty, former governor. That's how far back we go uh, in, in Minnesota. And I got elected in 2002 and had that uh, nail by 2008. But, uh, you know, what you're seeing is you're seeing that divide. Democrats' strength in urban centers, a Republican strength in, in, in rural areas and, and among working men and women and recapturing the vote in the suburbs and part on the inflation issue and part on the crime issue. Another race that I think perfectly encapsulates that clash and divide and contrast, Pennsylvania has gotten a ton of attention. You know, it started there in the primaries where you had Oz and McCormick on the Republican side, Lamb and Fetterman on the Democratic side. You know, Fetterman kind of upset the more establishment favored Lamb and was seen as having this blue collar appeal. Oz got President Trump's endorsement over McCormick, who had been married to a, a key high level official in the Trump administration. It was a contentious endorsement and it set up this clash all summer long. It looked like advantage Fetterman, but of late, it looks like Oz has really, really closed the gap. Energy issues relevant there. Fetterman, you know, had previously come out opposed to fracking, which is so key to Pennsylvania's economy, seemed to sort of backtrack there. How do you see things playing out in the in the bellwether of Pennsylvania? As I say these, I'm really trying not to just have my, you know, Republican lens on that I'm seeing it through that filter. On this race, I feel pretty strongly. Right? What we saw may have been one of the saddest performances in political history, watching, you know, Fetterman debating Oz and seeing a guy who really simply he didn't have the capability to even respond to a question. If you, the question on fracking, his answer was, I support, even though in 2018, he said he would never support fracking. He's totally opposed to fracking. It was interesting. Donald Lemon, right, not not a conservative, had Fetterman on the other day and, and pushed this same issue. And Fetterman's response on the fracking issue was, well, I support it now because, you know, we've changed the, the rules and the laws in Pennsylvania. And, and so therefore, yeah, I was against it, but now I'm for it. And then Lemon came back and said, no, 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 they changed those rules and regulation, those laws in 2016. You made your comments in 2018, and he, he couldn't respond. Uh, Fetterman's going to lose that race, not just because of physicality, not because his inability to, to comprehend, to articulate.
articulate, to do the things that senators need to do to convince their colleagues that they may be wrong on a position, they should support my position. He's going to lose it on the issues because Pennsylvania is what? Is it the second largest natural gas producing state in the country? It is perhaps the third largest energy producing state in the country. Fracking is part of its heart and soul. Fetterman has been against fracking. Fetterman has been wrong on the crime issue. He's, he's been the, the voice on a pardon board to, to set free all sorts of uh, folks who, you know, who would commit mayhem if they're back on the street. So on the issues that are important to voters, Fetterman is, is to the left of Bernie Sanders, and that's not Pennsylvania. And then I just got to say this about Mehmet Oz. I served with a heart surgeon in the Senate. You remember, his name was Bill Frist. He was really a smart guy, talented guy. You don't become a heart surgeon without, one, a bedside manner, and two, the, the kind of intellectual ability to kind of understand, comprehend, and in the end, I think it serves people well. That's Mehmet Oz. You know, it's interesting because our team took shots somehow that we nominated the, the bad candidates. Fetterman is a lousy candidate. Barnes in Wisconsin is a lousy candidate way to the way, way, way to the left of where Wisconsinites are. You look at the, you know, the governor's race in Arizona, you know, the Democrat candidate is brutal. And, and there's a reason she's not debating Kerry Lake. And so in the end, if you look at a race like Pennsylvania, Mehmet Oz will win that race. He started out way behind, a big divide in the Republican Party. After that battle that he had, McCormick, $20 million spent on beating the heck out of him. You look at the polls today, everything's moving in the Oz direction. And I think Oz prevails in that race. All right, let's take it down south to Georgia. High-profile race, Senator Warnock against Herschel Walker. We've also got a governor's race in that state. Speaking of candidate quality, so much hype around Stacey Abrams. Her and Beto O'Rourke, I think I read, will have spent a combined $150 million this cycle. Neither one of them have ever led in a poll. You've got uh, the incumbent governor, Kemp, up significantly on Abrams. Neck and neck race between Walker and Warnock. Not a lot of ticket splitting in Georgia, which leads me to believe that's advantage Walker with Kemp's coattails. But you also have to clear 50% where you go to a runoff in Georgia. Let me ask you this, not even so much who's going to win. Will we know on election night who the senator from Georgia is, or are we going to find ourselves in another situation where the Senate majority could come down to a runoff in Georgia? So I think actually we're going to know who has the Senate majority on election night. We may not know who wins Georgia. 2008, he had a, a recount in that race that had to go to Rome. He didn't get 50 percent. He ultimately won. So I think we're going to know who's going to win. But listen, if, if Republicans hold Pennsylvania and hold Wisconsin, which every indication seems they will, and then hold North Carolina, all they have to do is win one other state. We spoke about Nevada. And so if that happens, Republicans are going to be in the majority. What's interesting there, Neil, is, is let's say that there's a runoff there. Warnock, okay, cannot give the Democrats a majority. How much enthusiasm thinks is going to be on the D side to uh, to kind of you know put everything into that race when they've known that the, the majority is already gone and that's simply a numbers game there. If you look at that from that perspective, it bodes well for Herschel Walker. The other point that, and you kind of touched on it, but I want to stress it, is in the governor's race. Yeah, I got to tell you, with Stacey Abrams and, and uh, with Beto Rock, those are classic, you know, emperor has no clothes. I mean, there's just been nothing there. Tremendous disappointments, I'm sure, for the Ds who thought they'd put of a better fight. But what, Kent, what, what the governor has in Georgia is, is not just the leader there, but he has a ground game. Uh, he has a, a get out the votes. Well, you know, the world belongs to those who show up in this business. We talked about that with Nevada. You know, Harry Reid's gone. They don't have that machine. But in Georgia, the effort to get out the vote on the Republican side will far exceed the Democrat side. And I think that bodes well for Herschel Walker. And so, uh, you know, he's uh, he's taking a lot of incoming. There's no question about that. But I think he's in a very good position. And again, if we get 
get into a runoff where it's already clear the Republicans will control the majority. I think that bodes very, very well for Herschel Walker to be serving in the U.S. Senate. All right, those are the big ticket races. I quickly want to pivot to some of the ones that are kind of under the radar and just get your sense on some weird ones. We've seen some polling out of Iowa. I'm not sure I buy it. That Senator Chuck Grassley, legendary longtime Iowa senator, but he's 89 years old, might be in a closer than expected race there. Are we going to be eyeballing Iowa at all? I don't think so. I think, and again, you got to look at Gestalt, the overall, the big picture. You know, look at this environment. And in this environment where we're kind of all the, the, the energy is moving in the odd direction, Direction. The issue set that of concern, certainly the Iowans moving in, this, in, in the, the, the direction there. There are a couple of House races there that kind of been close races. You know, one of them, I think, decided when the House decided by about, I think, eight votes uh, a couple of years ago. There's going to be a lot of energy there on the R side. And, and so I think Chuck continues to serve. And by the way, you, you've worked with him. I serve with him. He's a force. He, I think he gets up still every morning and jogs. He does his run. He uh, visits every single county in Iowa. Some folk in their low in their 80s you know we got a president of the united states and people have raised questions about you know capacity chuck Rassing, no one raises that question he's as sharp as attack and so i think chuck does well you know one of the answers do you see the saint anselm poll saint anselm which is kind of the kind of the folks that the you know answer that folks look at it has bold up up at one point uh, in that wow I, i'm kind of stunned by that he, he's not on my projected list of uh, probably gonna take that but yeah i mean this was a race that it was a very very late primary the sort of sense was sununu said he couldn't win the establishment sort of had written him off and that's a neck and neck race i'll tell you another race that you want to look at if folks would have said who would have thunk washington state right a poll uh murray versus smiley murray up by two real clear politics average has it up by 4.3 that's that's pretty close to margin of error so listen on a good night republicans should have 52 could do 50 i'm assuming we win pennsylvania i'm assuming we pick up nevada and then it becomes a quick question do we pick up georgia do we pick up arizona those races are all very 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 close i think tell you how these things switch real clear politics average today the map today has republicans at 54 54 to me, that's bold. And I don't think that counts Colorado. I think it may count New Hampshire. In any case, yeah, you know, say so you've got even Colorado, where we've got that, that's one where we have a strong candidate, a strong candidate, uh, kind of a real clear kind of independent voice. So the map right now is looking, but the reason it's looking good, Neil, is, is even though in, in particularly, by the way, house races, where there are oftentimes kind of local individual issues kind of make the difference. I think what you're seeing here is what you're seeing is the kind of larger national trends. This, again, being what, what midterms typically are, as I said before, referendums on the incumbent. So if you look at real clear politics today, they have a New Hampshire GOP pickup. They have Pennsylvania a whole. They have Nevada pickup. They have Arizona as a pickup. And they have Wisconsin, Ohio, North Carolina, all as in Florida, Florida, all as holds. I think that's an optimistic projection. But I got to tell you, one of the things that we've also learned from the years in this business is when things start moving in one direction, everything kind of falls in that direction. These things don't kind of get divvied up. So I'm looking at a bigger number on the House side than what 538, what the New York Times, you know, has projected, what even Charlie Cook has projected, looking at 12 to 15, 12 to 20. I, I think he'd go 25, 35 seats. I don't want to be too optimistic, but I'm just kind of seeing things moving in that direction, moving in the Republican direction on the issues set on the things that are going to be on the mind of the voter when they walk in a polling booth. Do you think Democrats, looking at the map, made a strategic miscalculation in really kind of focusing on Dobbs and January 6th 
and not really addressing the concerns that voters had about inflation and the economy. It seems to be poll after poll shows that the number one issue on voters' minds are, are, you know, kind of classic kitchen table pocketbook issues. Are they just focusing on the wrong thing? I think so. And in part, now this is my partisan hat, it's because what else do they have to sell? Are they going to sell the Green New Deal to voters across this country? I'm sorry, that's not what's moving working men and women, particularly those working in the fracking industry in Pennsylvania, or you know those who are working in the gaming tables in Nevada. It's not, not going to move them. Are they going to sell the economy, inflation? If you look at the value of your wages, you're earning less money today than you were when Joe Biden took office in terms of real dollar value. We're hearing now, Neil, you can almost laugh, but we're hearing the old canard about Republicans are going to cut Social Security, right? They're going to kill your grandma. They're finally, I think, waking up to the reality that January 6th isn't the biggest issue on the minds of American voters right now. And Dobbs has an impact, but I think where you were on on abortion before Dobbs is where you are after Dobbs. I think it, it certainly generated some intensity. In the end, the issue really simply said it will go back to the states where the battle will be fought, not in Congress. They're not going to pass a federal a law to you know, reverse Dobbs. And so I think they simply made the wrong bet. But in part, I think the cards they were dealing with in terms of their agenda wasn't a strong hand. If midterm elections typically are base elections, that's what they typically are. So the Democrat base Okay. The Green New Deal. So remember, so they, they threw that into the Inflation Reduction Act, right? They got a lot of that, a lot of this stuff in there in that act. Student loans, they give forgiveness, you know, for student loans, F thousands of dollars. By the way, that really didn't improve their standing with working men and women, by the way, who didn't go to grad school, who didn't go to Harvard Law School, you know, Wharton Business School. It didn't give them much benefit. So you, you look at kind of the issue set. Obviously, we talked about the inflation. Uh, you know, the president's actions to cut off the Keystone Pipeline, day one, they're really simply saying, hey, what he promised. That we're going to kill the gas and energy, carbon-based energy fuel systems. That's not working for, for working men and women. So I don't think they had a strong hand. And then ultimately, if midterms are referendums on, on the party in power and on the incumbent, on the president, you know, from Afghanistan, which I think destroyed any kind of sense of confidence in, in his leadership, to economic policy, to the lack of control at the border, to rising crime rates, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think Americans are really fired up by January 6th or, 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 or the Dobbs decision. I don't think those will control control on election day. Well, to bring us home for a close here, Senator Coleman, it seems pretty clear from your analysis, you're projecting a good night for Republicans, Senate flip, House flip. Uh, this is a bit of a controversial take, but I think the worst thing that happened to Joe Biden and the Democratic Party was on January 5th of 2021, when the two Georgia runoffs went to the Democrats, giving them total unified control of government with the narrowest of margins. I am firmly of the belief that had one of those Georgia seats gone Republican and Republicans had the Senate majority, Biden would have been far better positioned. He would have had to moderate. He would have had foil in the Republican Senate majority to counteract what he couldn't get done on the from pressure from his left wing base. And he'd be in a far better position today. Different cabinet members, different people driving his regulatory agenda. In our closing minute, can you project forward as we head into the 2024 presidential election? Will divided government actually maybe help bring Joe Biden back to his moderate roots? And might we see a different direction in the country? By the way, I think your analysis is spot on. 
uh, Democrats control all the levers of government, and in the end, you know, what do they got to produce? What, what they what do they get for it? You know, eighty percent of the public thinks the country's moving in the wrong direction, and you only have one party to blame. It, listen, I'm an optimist, and you know, we saw divided government during the Clinton Ginrich era, where if actually folks were able to get things done, but that was a president then who tacked to the middle. I just don't know whether Biden is capable of tacking to the middle. I don't know whether he's kind of invested, weighed in so heavily uh, that he's not able to kind of find the middle ground. I'm hopeful, optimistic, because I believe in America, I believe in American people, and I believe, by the way, in the institutions. But members of Congress, I've, I've served with them, they want to do the right thing. But at least I can tell you about the Senate. I want to make America a better place. And, and that's the folks on both sides of the aisle, at least the, the, the sense that we've got to move this country forward. Some people's policies and ideology don't let them, allow them to do that. Well, thank you, Senator Coleman, for joining us for this week's special edition of the Plugged In Podcast. Really appreciate your analysis and expertise. And if you're right on these predictions and we're looking at a Senate Republican majority with a little bit of a cushion and what could be a sizable House Republican majority, there will most definitely be implications for energy policy in this country. It'll impact everything from implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act, oversight, confirmations, nominations, everything from FERC nominees to DOE nominees, EPA and the like, judges. This will no doubt be a consequential election with significant impacts on energy and environment policy that we will be talking about for weeks on end on the Plugged In podcast. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. Thanks so much again for listening to Season 3 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and by subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter, written by me, Brianne Depish, and my co-author, Jeremy Beeman. 